affect one another's lives in no uncertain manner. They had travelled in close proximity from Cambridge to Newmarket, but they had not yet spoken a word. He had noticed her, even as he edged himself into the spare seat by her side, and his first thought had a professional flavour. He had seldom, he thought, seen anyone, in bed or out of it, who looked so pale and fragile, so ill-conditioned to undertake a long journey upon an inclement day. Yet she had borne the cold and the lurching of the coach without any sign of distress, and when a jolt, which one might have thought would have shaken her to pieces, threw her, now against the side of the coach, now against Humphrey's arm, she gathered herself together again, self-contained and silent, and renewed her grip upon the clumsy, badly-wrapped parcel which she held in her lap. He decided that she was just a bad case of anemia, and for a moment or two, with a young disciple's inordinate interest in his chosen profession, amused himself by pretending that she was his patient, and that he was prescribing a tonic for her. And then, all at once, and for no reason, since he often amused himself that way, there seemed to be something very subtly indecent about his imaginary relationship. She wasn't his patient, and she had as much right to her privacy as any other passenger— So he diverted his attention, and exercised his mind, and excused his lapse by brooding over the difference between doctors and other men in a general sort of way. What a feeling of detachment, not to mention superiority, could be derived, for example, from seeing in a man in a flaming temper not an intimidating force, but an over-blooded body badly in need of phlebotomy. When he had explored this line of thought for a time, he reverted to the girl again this time with a determination to confine his interests to external things, she was, or would be in a more favourable state of health, extremely pretty, he thought. Even her greenish pallor and hollow cheeks could not rob her face of a curious, sorrowful beauty. Everything about her looked so soft, so very vulnerable. Her hair was brown, a soft, genuine brown, with nothing of red or gold in it, and it hung heavy, untidy, from under a battered little hat. Her nose was like a child's, flattened in a sweet curve between the eyes, and blunt at the tip. Of her mouth, the top lip was full and protruded a little, the lower drooped above a slightly receding chin. Save for the eyes, it might easily have been the face of a twelve-year-old, and in everything save their expression, the eyes too had a look of youth. The brows and lashes were the same brown as her hair, and the lashes were incredibly long, so that with each lowering of the lids they met and interlaced, and then disentangled themselves perceptibly, almost with difficulty. But when once, during his unobtrusive scrutiny, her eyes met his, although he looked away in confusion, as though caught in the act of spying, he saw that the eyes themselves were not those of a child. They were old and full of sorrow that he found disturbing, It was not a bereaved look, he was familiar with that, and did not jump hastily to the conclusion that she was on her way to a funeral, nor was a look of active unhappiness. In a more mature face, perhaps, that expression of experience, of disillusionment, of remoteness, would not have been noticeable, but set in that small, pale, childish face, it sent a stab to the heart. For the rest, she looked poor, Her cloak and the gown which showed beneath it were both of black, rusty with age, and skimpy and threadbare, inadequate for a winter journey. Her white cotton stockings were cobbled, and her shoes were derelict, a mass of patches, and the patches in places worn away again. She had no gloves, and though from time to time she changed hands, tucking one away into the poor shelter of her cloak, 
One was always exposed, clutching at the parcel in her lap. They were thin hands, with little knuckly fingers, blue-veined and whiter than one might have expected in a poor girl, but the first finger of her left hand explained that. The top joint was calloused with needle pricks. She was evidently a little sempstress. At last he had learnt all that his eyes could tell him about her, but he kept glancing at her, feeling the pull of some extraordinary fascination. Then he wondered if she were hungry. If indeed her frailty and apathy resulted from prolonged underfeeding, he was familiar with poverty, both in its ordinary and genteel forms, and knew all too many cases when a bowl of beef tea or a good egg custard wheedled from his master's housekeeper had been more effective than any physic. He was by this time healthily hungry himself, for in order to catch the coach he had missed his dinner. But the good woman in whose house he lodged during his Cambridge...